This is the seventh Sunday of Easter. It's the last Sunday of Easter in a sense, but the capstone of the great 50 days is next week, which is the day of Pentecost, where we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this week is kind of a prelude to that because the issue of the Spirit of God and waiting on the Spirit of God is part of the, the theme of these readings from the book of Acts, from First Peter, and from John's Gospel, where we're getting towards the end of the farewell discourse. And Jesus today is speaking the great high priestly prayer, or part of it. So I'm going to preach on all three of the readings. Thursday was the Feast of the Ascension. And this is often called the Sunday after Ascension. And in the prayer book where the collects are that the presider reads at the beginning of the liturgy, it says seventh Sunday of Easter or the Sunday after the Ascension. So this is when we can also preach a little bit about the Ascension. In fact, in Acts, the Ascension is described. And so we can sort of uh, speak about its meaning and how we understand it. I still remember many years ago when I was a, a, a new Episcopalian, I was in the office uh, at St. Matthew's Church in San Mateo, and the phone rang. It was the Wednesday before Ascension Day, and uh, the parish secretary answered, Elaine Seacrest, and the person on the other end said, what time is your Ascension Day service? And she said, it's at 7 p.m. or something like that. And the person on the other end said, uh, I just called up the Epiph Epiph Church of the Epiphany in San Carlos, and I asked them what time their Ascension Day service was, and they said, we don't have the Ascension Day in the Episcopal Church. <laughs> <laughs> so that was what we would have called in seminary, snake belly low. <laughs> We can hardly make the claim that uh, even at St. Luke's there are hordes at the Ascension Day liturgy proper. So it's important to say something about uh, the Ascension because you and I would be making a mistake in appropriating and understanding the importance of this uh, part of the Christian faith and life if we focus too heavily on the history. And there is a theological meaning here to the Ascension uh, that is important. Clearly, there is a pre-existent oral tradition in early Christianity prior to the writing down of the biblical witness that attests to some historical core about how the early church understood Jesus ascending into heaven. But the meaning is far broader, and even the biblical writers had a particular point to make. And I think Father Thomas Keating says it better than most when he speaks about the ascension as being not into some geographical location, but into the heart of all creation. In particular, he has penetrated the very depth of our being, our separate self-sense, and has melted into his divine person. And our separate self-sense has melted into his divine person, and now we can act under the direct influence of his spirit. So rather than think of the ascension as we should think of it as into your hearts. He has ascended now into your hearts. And I think that that's how uh, the early church understood that. And he goes on to say, 
that the ascension is a mysterious interpenetration of material experience, spiritual reality, and the divine presence. This opens us to the transcendent potential in ourselves, to our mind, which opens up to unlimited truth, and to our will, which reaches out in unlimited love. So these readings are going to speak a little bit from today, a little bit about those processes that are involved here uh, as we wait upon the Spirit coming next week on the Feast of Pentecost. In the book of Acts, uh, after the account of the Ascension, we have the preparation for Pentecost. All the apostles go to the upper room, and they're there with the disciples, and it says, some women. And this is the last mention in the New Testament of the Blessed Virgin Mary, as they're praying with the apostles. So they're there waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit when Christian people read this and think about it in terms of Bible study, uh, one of the ways you might reflect on it is to think about waiting upon God. You know, I say practically every sermon, the Spirit is God coming from within to enlighten and strengthen us. But there are often processes involved in our personal reflection, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, about identifying it from within and recognizing it in the first place. If we established as a matter of faith that that is so, uh, you and I can't always see it or feel it or think it. So we have to say that sometimes there are some processes involved to once again believe or see or feel God coming from within to enlighten and strengthen us. And we may need to get over some age-old prejudices that it means when the, when the spirit is from within to enlighten and strengthen us, it means in terms of religious fervor or that it means in terms of some ability to understand or be able to articulate a particular religious vocabulary. When in fact may have everything to do, it may have everything to do with the way in which you and I understand uh, being a decent human being and bringing health and wholeness to our relationships and bringing excellence to our work and doing the best that we can do in all the aspects of our life. In other words, the Spirit of God is available to us for the purposes of building character. And one of the ways to understand character is living your life according to certain principles. So the Spirit has a lot to do with all of that and the apostles and the disciples and certain women <laughs> We're waiting <laughs> for, for that to come. You know, it seems funny to us, but it was an extraordinary statement uh, during the biblical witness for that to have even come up. In First Peter, here's, you know, my O.C. Edwards thing, what the Bible says versus what the Bible means, or being a student of the Bible. If you place an early date on the, on the writing of First Peter... You believe that it's Petrine, that Peter wrote it? He would have had to have written it sometime between 62 and 68 A.D. So he's speaking today about something that has now bubbled up in the church, the post-Easter church, the church trying to, to live the, the resurrection faith. And that is, uh, how are we dealing now with the issue of persecution? And he could be speaking here uh, 
if it's him, of the first one, Nero. You know the guy who fiddled while Rome burned? Well, that was around then, 62 to 68. And the tradition says that Peter and Paul were martyred then in Rome, and Paul on the road from Ostia, the port, uh, to Rome. So he's writing about uh, coming to grips with the whole idea of being persecuted. This is a good opportunity to say something to you about uh, the persecution of Christianity. Um, you can have, get the impression from some, and particularly people who hold martyrdom in high regard, you, Islam is not the only religion that in its tradition has, has had a, a surfeit of, of uh, exaltation of martyrdom. Certainly in the early Christian church, there were people who believed that martyrdom was the way to go, and you sought it out because it was a, it was a certain uh, a, a sort of a higher level a more elite level of uh, Christian participation. So for the first couple of centuries, it was held in pretty high regard, and certainly the communion of saints or the um, uh, inclusion now of praying for saints had to do first with the cult of martyrs as being part of all of that. So martyrdom is something that was held in high regard, but Christians were not persecuted continuously. There was sort of punctuated persecution that went on for the first two or three hundred years. And then after Constantine uh, uh, said Christianity is not only tolerated, but it's the legal religion of the Roman Empire, then the persecution began to stop. So we're beginning now, though, with persecution. And Peter saying to this community who is believing themselves to uh, uh, have you know, a special understanding of the power of God's work in the world are also having to cope with adversity and difficulty. And in this passage, we even have the word anxiety mentioned. You know, that God is somehow uh, prepared to remove from you uh, anxiety about the future. That's always comforting in every age, isn't it? Because there's plenty of anxiety about the future around now. So these passages have application in some sense uh, in every age. But it's also important to know that um, if we were to try to appropriate this text now and think about persecution and Christianity in the United States, you know, I mean, this isn't like living in the Sudan, right? Where people, Christians, really are persecuted. I mean, they get killed. We, we suffer a certain kind of persecution, in my opinion, as the result of the, 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 the culture that we live in. And there's this sort of gratuitous uh, hostility to Christianity that a lot of people have because they have a sort of superficial understanding of all of its faults. Some of the gratuitous uh, uh, criticism of Christianity is not undeserved. So that's, that's part of the issue, too although I think sometimes we dwell more on that than is absolutely necessary. I do think that it's uh, also fair to say that uh, one of the things that uh, we need to do is to make sure people know the truth about whatever faith tradition we're in and how Episcopalians come to the deep things of Christian faith and belief. Here's an interesting thing that doesn't quite relate to what I'm saying, but I didn't get to go hear Barbara, Barbara Butler Bass at the uh, 
at St. Paul's in Salinas when she was here. She's written uh, two excellent books, and she's a student of contemporary Christianity, particularly in the United States, is a historian of contemporary Christianity. And um, she said, I'm often uh, criticized by my more serious Christian historian colleagues who believe that what I'm interested in uh, is um, not real history, but journalism. But here she said, uh, she was talking about the growing of churches or not growing in the United States. And she said, you know, the Southern Baptists have lost all their gains. They're gone. So, in other words, what she was saying is that the, the uh, idea that the conservative evangelical churches are growing or that conservative churches are growing is not true any longer. No Christian churches are growing. And, of course, what that means is that uh, some of this gratuitous persecution may be paying off and that we have dropped the ball. So what Peter has to say today is uh, in some ways uh, helpful in the sense that we believe that the Spirit of God uh, is an anxiety reducer and that the church functioning at its best in every age has always understood that to be so and gives us some encouragement. In chapter 17 of John's Gospel, Jesus is at the Last Supper, and he is today praying the great high priestly prayer. Some biblical scholars refer to this as his prayer of consecration, his preparation in the way John writes about it, out loud in front of the apostles and the disciples to prepare himself for his redemptive work on the cross. But think about this. John's Gospel is the latest of all of the Gospels. It was written probably between 95 and 100 A.D. And so the community that is listening to these words uh, are coming to grips with their understanding of the mighty works of Jesus Christ. And so from the oral tradition and from the material that the community that wrote John's Gospel had, they begin now to speak about how they understand Jesus. And what this is about, uh, it's kind of spiral in its reasoning, is that Jesus is speaking about himself in a way that reflects how the Johannine community understands who he is. And so when he has mine and you and him and me and you and, you know, but sometimes I just get lost in that. But really what it means is, is that the community came to understand that the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross, which becomes the focus of so much Christian teaching and pre preaching, particularly after the Reformation, is only part of a fuller and deeper understanding of the work and the message of Jesus. So what a theologian would say about what is in this passage is that the Johannine community understands now Jesus in depth. So when I say that, uh, the only way to understand this for us, I think, uh, is not about religious matters. And to have you think about something in your life 
that you have come to understand in depth what it is that you do in your vocation that over the years as you have become more uh, adept at what it is that you do that you begin to see this in depth you understand it it's, it's understanding I could not do math and all that stuff in school I just first of all I could not stand it secondly it, it, it bored me to death and I just found it and I didn't work hard enough I didn't like it so I just didn't work hard enough I had to take algebra one three times to pass out of it in school I mean I didn't physically pass out I did better in geometry than I did you know it was just uh, too much uh, for me but you know what I got to be fairly good with numbers, keeping my grandfather's books at the store. And when I started to do that, I began to learn about that and could understand it in depth. So I do all this work on the diocesan budget committee, you know, and I read this stuff and I get it. I understand it. And I realize that there are a lot of people who are going, you know, yeah. better you than me. <laughs> but the way, the way you do that is to be able to uh, find a way to, to, to do those things. And I'll bet that you can find a way in your life where all of a sudden uh, that is something that you began to do. I also remember in second grade when I broke the code and I could read. Bang. That's when I said, ah, now, right? So that's the kind of thing that I'm speaking about. The people who followed Jesus, heard his words, saw his works, began to say there is a connection between my observing of what he is and what he does and who I am and what I do. And somehow he's beginning, beginning to give me tools to use about life. So this is the last thing I want to say about this section because it's full of in the world and not in the world. So, you know, you get the idea that there's a salvation. You get the idea that heaven and it is somewhere else. You know, we're in the world. We don't want to be in the world. Well, where do you want to be? Well, some imaginary cloud cuckoo land location is all where we're going to go. And the biblical writers didn't mean that. They were in the world. God's saving work is in the world. You become a participant in the saving work of God in the world, in human history. The world, when it is spoken of pejoratively in the New Testament, has to do with all things in the cosmos organized against God's purposes. And we don't want to be there. You know, what's the t term that we hear nowadays a lot of people? Don't go there. Right? That's not a place we want to go. That's the world in John's gospel. He's not speaking about world-hating, world-denying, that matter, the body, our, our personal relationships together are not consecrated, are not in some way valuable and loved by God and affirmed. We're, that is not what we're talking about. 
And it is a great mistake that is made by uh, many people who preach and teach uh, the Christian faith. So you've heard it from me that uh, think about the world in a, in a different sort of way. What we end up with is, he doesn't say it, uh, Jesus, in this part of John's Gospel, but what's implied is that the Comforter is always around. And the Comforter is the Holy Spirit. Dr. John McQuarrie, uh, in his book on theology that all seminarians had to read, at least I did, uh, talks about the Spirit as being unitive being. That aspect of God that draws us all together both in terms of our corporate relationship with each other and internally in our emotional, spiritual, and mental states. So that the unifying power of the Spirit enables us to become whole. It unites us. And Jesus says in the farewell discourse that that's what's going to come to comfort you. And that's what you're going to have because I'm not here anymore. So in a funny sense, we're thrown back on our own resources that have been sanctified by God. And by virtue of that, we are now going to do even greater works than he has done. So we're getting set up now for the coming of the Spirit, uh, which will be the sort of both the glue that holds us together and the resource that uh, enables us to be uh, empowered to do God's work in the world. So this week, wait on the Spirit. Do a little thinking and reflecting. Macquarie wrote another book years ago called Paths and Spirituality where he had a whole chapter called Prayer as Thinking. You know? So sometimes it's not kneeling down and going ooh, 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 like this. It may be just thinking and sitting and doing a certain amount of reflection about things. And uh, then you come to see in depth and pray for that. Amen.